So one of this year's major campaigns is about ending plastic pollution. And I have to admit that until I started regularly following environmental research and news as a science writer, I hadn't really realized the extent of this problem. I think as we're all sort of living in our own little corners of the world, it's easy to lose sight of how big the world actually is and how the situation may be fine where you are, but in other parts of the world, people are struggling, and it's all happening out of your view. We like to think that not only does that global suffering not affect us, but that we're not responsible for it, and that we're not to blame for it. As a child, though, I recall being taught, or at least someone attempting to instill in me, that being a good citizen of the world meant that you didn't just offer help in order to absolve yourself of blame or clean the slate. Helping to make life better for the global community, even if it doesn't directly impact you, isn't just a noble act. It's the glue that holds society together. And beyond borders, it's created a sense of world community that offers perspective. A perspective that as a young person, and even today, I don't find to be a burden, but rather a comfort to know that I'm not alone. Now, when it comes to the issue of plastic pollution in the world's oceans, this is a topic that does feel more personal to me than it probably does to, say, somebody living in the land locked Midwest who's never seen the ocean before. Not only did my seaside upbringing give me a deep love of the critters that live in and around it, but a keen sense of the industries that rely on the ocean, and thus the people in my life who depended on the tides to feed their families. Being in Maine, lobstering was obviously a key industry, as was fishing and boating, and many of my friends' families relied on it, and a bad season could be felt longer than just the months of the year when their fathers and brothers were hauling traps. As I grew up and kind of got a basic earth science education, I started to feel much more sensitive to the ocean's needs, not just the Atlantic, corner of which belonged to me or I to it, but the world's oceans, the health of which influence one another. One of the biggest threats to our world is plastic pollution, which is one of Earth Day's major campaigns, reducing plastic waste overall, but especially in the world's oceans, where it's reached kind of freakish levels, around 150 million tons by some estimates, and that number is growing each year. But to understand the plastic problem, we really need to have a little primer on plastic. Where did it come from, and how long has it actually been around? And could we ever go back to living without it, or at least reduce our use greatly? Plastic is by definition a term used to describe a malleable material made from any number of synthetic compounds and other manufactured substances that help keep it cheap without compromising its function, and in some cases even improving it. These added materials are usually petrochemicals, which are derived from fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, petroleum, and sometimes like sugarcane. Corn and cellulose are also sometimes used. Now plastic can be used in everything from a toothbrush to the International Space Station. They're incredibly versatile and for the most part are easy and cheap to mass produce. We see plastic pretty much everywhere now, but that's really a fairly recent invention. Prior to the 1830s, we didn't have plastics or even a material close to it. Clay and glass could be molded into various objects, but it didn't retain its flexibility. You could use tree 
gum for certain things that required rubber, but rubber wasn't able to withstand high temperatures and it didn't retain its malleability over time. One of the challenges during the Industrial Revolution then was to either find or create materials that had all of these attributes but were ideally not too expensive to produce or use. One of the discoveries that changed the game and really ramped up plastics ultimate foray into industrial chemistry came in 1839 when Charles Goodyear, whose name might sound familiar, discovered the process we called vulcanization. Sulfur forms chemical bonds between two rubber polymer strands when it's heated and then cooled. This gave it the resilience that natural gum from like a tree lacked. A few years later, there were some other chemists, Charles Shavine and possibly also Alexander Parks in 1856 who ultimately patented this, but one or both of them discovered that when you mix nitric and sulfuric acid mixtures with a fiber like cotton, what resulted was a polymer that was flammable but smokeless, nitrocellulose. Now, as far as the story goes, Shabian discovered it by accident when he spilled some stuff in his lab, and in general, lab safety first, you know, but apparently then it was patented by Alexander Parks, who was in the UK, whereas Shabian was in Germany, so I'm actually not sure who really gets the credit for the invention. Uh, but then in 1970, yet another chemist, John Hyatt, used nitrocellulose and camphor to create celluloid, which is basically what ping pong balls are made of. The first totally synthetic polymer came in 1909 when a chemist at DuPont, Wallace Carruthers, combined adipic acid with diaminohexane monomers, which could be separated into long fibers. Today, we call this polymer nylon. From there, more plastics were created or reformed into other things and given different names and basically continued to be developed pretty rapidly throughout the First and Second World War. Today, the plastics industry is mostly centralized to the United States, although the rest of the world's top manufacturers are either in Japan or Germany. Plastics are made through the combination of various natural and man-made chemicals, to which various add-ons are then thrown in to enhance them in some way. Things like stabilizers, fillers, plasticizers, and colorants can come in the form of dyes, oils, fire retardants, chalk, starch, and other materials which help keep it from degrading, make it cheaper to produce, and keep it from catching fire. The plastic polymer itself is not usually the problem because they're mostly chemically inert. It's the additives that are toxic not just to the environment, but to those who are living in it, including us. Now, for the most part, by the time the finished product hits the shelves or winds up in your home, it shouldn't be leaching out these chemicals, but we know that they do. One of which, vinyl chloride, is a known human carcinogen and is the precursor to PVC. You've probably also heard of bisphenol A, or BPA, especially as it pertains to stuff like plastic water bottles. Now, when some polymers are exposed to heat and break down, they release polycarbonates, the basis of which is BPA, which has been shown to disrupt the way that the human body uses estrogen, which is a hormone. The implications of this exposure have been linked to everything from insulin resistance to cancer, and so BPA-free products are becoming more and more desirable by people who are worried uh, about BPA exposure, which should basically probably be everybody. Aside from having direct toxicity, the environmental impact, which perhaps is slower to reach us, is not insignificant. Plastics have been designed for durability, which means that most of them take a really long time to degrade. So if you toss some plastic waste in the ocean or on the side of the road, you better believe that it's probably going to sit there for years. There's also an increasing concern about the presence of microplastics 
plastics, which are either produced to be that tiny, so like those beads and face wash that everybody was talking about a couple years ago, or the result of plastic degradation. Researchers have started finding them in alarming quantities in the guts of fish and seabird, in addition to the larger plastic waste, which can be consumed by these critters or obstruct their habitat or even be injurious to them. So it's been projected that by 2050, there will be more plastic in the world's oceans than fish. And if that seems like it's a long time away, I would just like to point out that we are as far away from 2050 as we are from 1986. It's just 32 years. So it's not really that long of a time. By that same year, there's projected to be 13.2 billion tons of waste in landfills, which is where most of our plastic waste ends up. Smaller percentages get incinerated or recycled. From the time it was invented to date, we've produced somewhere around 9.1 billion tons of non-recycled plastic, 6.3 billion tons of which has ended up as plastic waste. So efforts to both reduce production and consumption of plastics will be necessary to slow down the rate of plastic waste accumulation, but we also need to clean up all the waste that's already out there. And if you're thinking about like, you know, the 30 years from now when we're gonna have more plastic in the ocean than sea critters if we don't do something about it, and really how close it feels like we are to like the mid 1980s, I'm willing to bet that some of the plastic that's out there causing problems right now probably was also out there in 1986. They always say that diamonds are forever, but I think the truth here is that plastics are forever.